Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today I have with me Dennis Crowley. Dennis is the president for Trellis Software, a fintech platform for the issuance, placement, management, and trading of alternative assets. He's an accomplished senior executive and entrepreneur with nearly 30 years of experience across the technology, services, and security industries, and then also a fellow Suffolk Law graduate. Good. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. This is great. Always good to talk to another Suffolk Law graduate. Absolutely. And we, we, right before we went live, told me you're a longtime host, first time guest. So we're going to, we're going to try to take it easy on you and be nice and gentle, but we'll have I'm some ready fun. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm not, uh, <laughs> the other way around. So I'll, I'll wait. No, it's wonderful. Um, so l- let's start with kind of some broad definitions here so that people can get some context. Let's start with FinTech, financial technology, a, a term that gets thrown around a lot and maybe, you know, put into a, a, a pile with Web3 and all these other things happening. Could you maybe just help tease out what your definition of, of financial technology is? It's a, it's a good, that's a really good question because it is pretty vast. I've talked to companies that are doing cash payment processing, which is fintech. Companies that are doing public investment transactions, which define themselves as fintech. I think it's a become more of a buzzword uh, than a defined uh, definition of of what it is, and, and people try to keep finding more and more in there. As you just said, Web three and and getting into blockchain and applying technology and decentralized uh, ledger aspects. I guess it all still kind of fits in. It applies. It's it's 
advancing modern technology that connects somehow into the financial service world is probably the way I would define it, but I don't think there's any clear definition of it. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to another real estate sponsor about this the other day, how almost regardless of the industry or the focus, we've all become software companies in in many ways, right? In terms of my investor relations, my asset management tools, my CRM, the communication, the reporting, everything runs through some type of software application. Uh, Even though I'm in the most old line (laughs) real asset industry there is in many ways, I I think it's misused. FinTech, I think is misused because all these financial services firms and professional services firms are really you know, bolt-on technology companies at this point. It, you know, it's, it's funny you say that. I So my background before getting into this world, I came out of as as old as real estate, uh, the security industry, guards and buildings, and putting, hiring people, signing them to a site to work, uh, paying them, uniforming them, doing everything else from there. But really our growth came, we, we were in business for 25 years, and in the early 2000s, we started in 1990, it got up to about uh, 10 million in revenue. But you know, one of the things that always held us back was the ability to grow the cost, but also the resources, the people, the time, and everything else from there. That's when the early stages of what we consider SaaS software came into play. It was the first time that I got involved with a platform that did our payroll processing, and from there, we could do our billing. And suddenly it allowed us to take what a process that was taking a good port of, portion of our backend office each week to process payroll and do all of that and to bill. And it took now minutes to do, uh, well, maybe hours to do is probably a better term, which allowed us to stay focused then in on sales, growth, operations, expanding. And as the technology advanced, our sales expanded over the next 16 years, took the company from 10 million in revenue up to 90 million in revenue. And I always, and as we found the enhancements in really the accounting software that was tied into our billing and our payroll, that really allowed us to expand and grow. We went from a, a Northeast company into a, a nationwide business. And I yeah. think it's the technology that, that en- enabled it. And the, that company, those companies that I worked with would call themselves FinTech. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, my business, I mean, the syndication business, we're going to get into you know, what you do and how it relates to our focus, but would not be possible, honestly, without some type of automated software solution. You just can't... I can't speak to 500 investors you know, in an orderly fashion or send out opportunities to 5,000 people through an analog-based system. And, and so it has likewise allowed us to scale in a very... Uh, efficient manner. So talk about this, you know, you went through this journey of building your company. What led you to to doing what you do today? And and that will maybe cue us into talking about alternatives. Sure. So, you know, I got an offer that was too good to turn down in late 2016. I needed to, uh, uh, went through a year working for the company I sold to, completed our earnout, and said, now I got to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. Do I want to stay in the security business? Do I want to do something else? You and I met through an organization called YPO. I was actually at an event with a, a forum mate and someone approached us about at that time about potentially buying a company. Uh, my friend was in the finance world, had run a small hedge fund, had an idea to take small cap public companies private 
uh, it was a great idea on paper, but as we started to move forward with it, I, the idea I would be the operating partner and come in and run and support the businesses. We partnered with a, a group in Boston uh, to run our fund through, do all the compliance management work with. Uh, as we went through, we went after three different companies, had the funding for it, but we found that these public boards didn't really like to get bought out. They lost their nice pay. Uh, they, they didn't own much shares, so there was really no benefit to them, although they had a fiduciary duty to help out those uh, their uh, shareholders often they would find uh, ways to justify taking care of themselves and meet their fiduciary duty. It's interesting as I watched this recent events transpire with Twitter and Elon Musk and the way he made the offer, he, he had a lot more cachet than uh, I did uh, as we, we made these things go forward. But the initial reaction from the boards was exactly what we saw happen with Twitter. Uh, eventually, they just couldn't withstand it any longer and went from there. So at this point now, I've transitioned into this new capital markets world and learned a lot, uh, met some good people and was approached by uh, the group that we were working out of uh, was a firm called Shepard Kaplan Krochuk. They're uh, now a close to $9 million asset management firm in Boston. And Tim Krochuk was sliding over to become the CEO of this startup idea called Trellis, uh, which is the company that we're with now. With the whole idea, Trellis and a couple of other groups, or excuse me, SKK and a couple of other groups all had a need, which similar to what you just described, they, first of all, as a registered investment advisor and RIA are constantly looking at investment opportunities, private investment opportunities for their clients, getting inundated, a lot of noise. How do you look at them? How do you diligence them, Do your provide your fiduciary duty, and then ultimately present them out to clients to invest in. That was one of their big challenges. They'd also added on an alternatives arm where they were finding investment opportunities, building SPVs around them and offering them to their wealth management clients, but also looking to expand on those investment bases out to external clients. So they needed an ability to syndicate their investment opportunities at a larger scale. Along came another group, uh, broker-dealer group called ShareNet with a similar interest, and then eventually partnered with a third group called ClearList. ClearList was set, just set up at the same time. They are owned by GTS, which is the largest market maker on the New York Stock Exchange. ClearList was set up as a FINRA-approved alternative trading system. So they're setting up the platform to allow privately held securities to be traded amongst accredited and qualified investors. And all three of them wanted a technology stack that would support their operations and help make them far more efficient. So as we sat and talked with them and what do you do? What do you need? How does this work? We went out and wrote the software for it and delivered our minimal viable product. And then as you, with that, now we turned it over to them and we want to do this, want to do that, expand it, go, started adding beta customers and, you know, ultimately have built a platform with our that we think is an end-to-end -end solution for managing all aspects of the private investment process. And really, ultimately, our goal is to make investing in private securities as easy as investing in the public markets. And I prefer that term private as opposed to alternative. And you wrote a really good blog piece about this. Alternative is, my, in my opinion, a misnomer because high net worth individuals and families and wealth creation 
has taken place outside of the market forever, right? Outside of the public stock market. It's just a function of it's been inaccessible or there's been a high barrier entry to the to the public or even beyond just a, um, a handful of people or entities for a very long time. And, you know, Wall Street famously built a pretty good moat around it for about a generation. But we've seen that with the Jobs Act under Obama and other you know, technological innovations that's really eroded. And so allowing more people to access that. Could you maybe speak just high level what you've seen in the space occur over the, I guess you've been doing this for, you know, five, six years now? Yeah. I think a few things have happened to it. One is the introduction of crowdfunding brought a lot more awareness and attention to the private investment world. What was something you know, considered of the elite, the rich, the wealthy, whatever title you want to give it, suddenly the masses, the retail investor was aware that there was options to investing in private companies early on. You know, Trellis is not a crowdfunding site. We don't get involved in there, but I think that brought attention to the ideas uh, more and more of investing in privately held securities. In addition, you know, just seeing the growth of companies and companies staying private a lot longer, that was the other big thing that's really transitioned over the last 20 years. You know, what our thesis before when we were trying to take these small cap companies private was that a lot of, a lot of businesses went public in the 70s, 80s, 90s to raise capital. It was a great way to raise capital. You didn't have to be a, a multi-billion dollar market cap organization to go public. And there was a a place for you. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley came in and changed that and really made it difficult to be a small and mid-sized public company. So as a result, more and more companies are staying private longer. And with that, you know, the average person is not getting access to these investment opportunities until they are huge mammoth companies coming out on IPO. And generally at that point, they've been pumped up in too much value. And you know, usually the retail investors, you know, lag behind on those opportunities that, you know, the venture capital firms and, you know, the other large institutional investors have taken advantage of. So I think we're now seeing this interest of getting involved in these private investments at an earlier stage. But the challenge still is how do you do it? How do you you know, survive through it if you need liquidity? There's always that's always a great challenge in getting through the process and, and getting beyond there. Also, think the fact that technology has brought us along. Going back to our original conversation on fintech, you know, we're seeing it more, trusting it more. I think what PayPal did for credit card for the uh, it, buying e-commerce on on the internet, you know, it was one thing to put your credit card numbers in being lost, confused, going from there. You know, PayPal created a comfort level in security in transacting online. You know, now we're trying to find more and more ways to create that comfort level in security in investing uh, using these platforms. Yeah, trust has definitely grown and people feel more and more comfortable transacting over email, over internet, without the hand-to-hand combat, which I think is helping this whole spread and proliferation. Classic marketplace problem, right? You've got 
a lot of appetite on the investor side. More and more people want access to private investments, and there's more and more private investment offerings happening. <laughs> How do you make sure that you're acting as that kind of intermediary and making sure that you're working both ends of the funnel, right? That you've got the the right investor groups involved, as well as the deal flow side. And that is the key to everything. Uh, it's There's a lot of activity out there, a lot of noise, and a lot of people that don't know how to properly diligence and look at it at an investment opportunity. I, I will be the first one to say, I sold my company for the first time in my life, had access to to cash that I could do something with and I made a handful of private investments that were probably poor, poor decisions to invest in them. They, they, so far, they have been uh, very good for me, um, but they were decisions made because I invested in friends and ideas that I knew and liked without really diligencing and understanding what they were doing, how they would grow and where they would go. I've watched these go, you know, up and down and 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 survive through various rounds. A couple of times I thought, you know, one or two of them may not make it make it through. But if I could go back in time knowing what I know now to then, you know, I would have done a lot more research. I would have asked for a lot more documentation information. Would have made sure there there really was viability to the idea. It was my gut that got me involved, but you know, I should have validated my gut feeling with diligence and research. But how do I ask for that? Where do I get it? You know, get into a data room. Where do I find this? Where do we go? What am I looking for? You know, that's what we're trying to build is take that confusion and, and the dysfunction out of it and putting it all onto this one end-to-end -end workflow that allows those that are raising capital to answer questions, information, build out as a result of it, what we call a digital roadshow and a institutional grade data room, present that and then out to these intermediaries. The intermediaries are those that are exempt under Reg D to connect investors to issuers. So your RIAs, family offices, broker dealers, VCs, et cetera, as well as the issuer themselves and allow them to that the other groups that are are looking for deal flow to find it, have it ready to go, look at 10, 12 deals without having to go back and forth and ask for a lot of information because it's all there. Determine this is something that is a interesting investment opportunity and present it out to their clients who have completed KYC, you know, AML, all of the other compliance pieces in a in a portal where they can look at it, have access to everything. And if they decide to invest, actually click the subscribe button. And, and sign the document right there. So there's a lot to invest in a private security that should happen, probably just as much as what should happen in the public markets. The problem is, is people just buy securities, you know, log into a, you know, a Robinhood, uh, log into a Fidelity account, brokerage account they have and say, you know, I talked to my dad told me I should invest in this company or my buddy said this one without really doing the research, without going into Edgar and reading SEC filings, without looking for analyst reports or anything else from there. You know, but there are always those options available to them in the public markets, which historically haven't been easily to access in the private side. More information is key, and that's what we've tried to facilitate the, the flow of information for all parties involved. Mm -hmm.
Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. You referenced it earlier, but could you comment on the differential between crowdfunding, like the, the regulatory defined crowdfunding of, say, a Republic or a WeFunder? We've had one of the WeFunder people on the show before. Cool platforms, true crowdfunding, kind of similar to uh, what's going on with Real Crowd, CrowdStreet, et cetera, versus what you all are doing. And, and what those highlights some differences there? Sure. So, so on the crowdfunding side, any investor, anyone, retail investor can get involved and you can buy in small increments on these companies. And there's a lot of great platforms out there. Uh, you know, we've seen AngelList, Republic. Oh my God, I'm blanking on the one from the uh, Start Engine, et cetera, that allow people to come in, log into a, a web page and see the investment opportunity. And they have put in core information that is relevant for an investor to help them make a decision. What are the projections? What, Who's the leadership team? What is there, et cetera. And then allow them to click through and sign. Their uh, government allowed this, I believe with the Jobs Act. And you know, I'm not an expert on crowdfunding. So uh, you know, it was in the, I think around 2011, if I recall, but I could be wrong on that, that allowed this to exist and grow. And then this new technology brought the two together and, and again, helped build that comfort level and trust. You know, there are limits on how much you can raise through crowdfunding. Once you're in, you know, it's like any other private investment, you know, you need, there is, you're not going to be able to get liquidity right away. Uh, you're, you're in on that round and until there's some type of, of exit or, liquidity event that happens for the company, your investment's held there and, and there you are. But it's an opportunity for retail investors to come in at a, at a lo- low barrier to entry. We are not a crowdfunding site. We are a traditional private investment opportunity under Regulation D of the Securities Act of 1940. Again, I'm a lawyer, but I would not recommend hiring me <laughs> anytime soon on, on that end. But with that, there are the those that are allowed to invest in Reg D opportunities need to be what it's considered an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser. Accredited investor is an individual taxpayer that over the previous two years has made over $200,000 uh, on their, that they filed with their income taxes as a joint payer, 300,000, or has a net worth in excess of a million dollars, excluding their primary residence. So if you own a, a house outright that's worth a million dollars, but don't have anything else, that won't count. You need to have a a million dollars or more of assets that beyond your primary residence. If you're an accredited investor, you can invest in these uh, Reg D investment opportunities. If you're a qualified purchaser, which is an even higher standard, you can get involved. And an accredited investor can get involved, but if they get into funds such as uh, as a limited partner into a either an SPV or some type of fund. There's a certain, you can only have up to 99 accredited investors, whereas a fund can have up to 2,500 qualified purchasers. They've since added on additional standards from there. So it is ultimately for higher net worth individuals to invest in, but it is not, the barrier to entry is also not a, you don't need to be a 
a 10 plus millionaire, 100 millionaire, billionaire to be involved in this, which I think is sometimes what the stigma is that people always assume they're not accredited investors. And a definition that's moving right year to year. Uh, and, and I think it will continue to, honestly. So let's talk more about the, the platform, you know, from maybe execution. I think people have a good sense of, of how it works and which we'll do, but what's been the biggest challenge of putting this whole thing to work? It seems like you've got, I mean, I know ShareNet, they're a Boston think founded firm and the other groups you mentioned, you know, great uh, DNA there, but actually getting into the guts of it, how much work was it to, to put this together? You know, it's, it was a lot of work because it's a, it's a logical process flow to program and to write the code. And I'm not a coder, uh, so I don't want to sound like I, <laughs> I know what I'm doing there. I know enough to say, hey, we need to get from point A to point F. And these are the different things you should think about. Someone actually has to write the code. And that is always the great challenge. You know, it isn't just do this and then that, but it's do this. If these five things happen, do that. If it's these six things happen and adjust from there, and then all of the possible different outcomes and in workflows to end up at the final point uh, of the transaction. So signing NDAs. Well, what if someone doesn't want to sign the NDA that's put in there? Uh, they need to rewrite it and negotiate back and forth. There's a process there. How do we make that work programmatically? Uh, when we're signing in subscription documents and working through the flows, when does the transaction get completed? Who's doing what? Who? How do we make sure this gets in here? What if we have a, a custodian that comes in? What if we an advisor wants to review documents? So all of these little steps that we just take for granted historically that have been going through. Someone once told me, said, what you really guys do is take 17 different meetings and put it all into one automated workflow. And the problem is, is when you're in those 17 meetings, six, five or six different things could happen in each one of those 17 meetings. So you got to really multiply that 17 by you know, five uh, for each one of them to get the total things that we've had to think about, build and, and create to make sure it all works in a seamless transactional process. And that that has taken a lot of time, energy, and a lot of great uh, uh, programmers and uh, technology team on our part. Yeah, the decision tree keeps just branching out, right? Depending on <laughs> if then, and yeah, I mean, we try to use as many automated systems as possible, as possible, but especially when it comes to the documentation, oftentimes it's going to come down to a multiple phone calls and the dreaded conference calls. But you know, you've got to kind of go old school sometimes and to the extent that you can eliminate that friction. That's terrific and better for everybody, right? Lower costs, ease of transaction. Hopefully the investor gets to, to benefit from all of that. What does the engagement look like on the, on the platform the, these days? Uh, give us a sense of kind of, I think we know what the addressable market is, but what's the volume like right now? So, so we have been in a beta mode really for the last six plus months. And we're just coming out of that now really launching our platform in a sense uh, next week uh, or early May with you know the idea of having the core software ready to go June 1st. So marketing, selling it, still a couple of tweaks to still make uh, from there. But it's really been, it was uh, two years in a sense of writing the code, six months of beta testing it and getting it to market now. We're currently working with 
you know, ourselves, we're working with about 30 companies uh, who are putting their investment opportunities on their mixture, primarily early stage companies. We have uh, several funds, a couple of SPVs as well. And for them, you know, they're raising capital directly as it, it, they're, they're, they're using the platform more to, to facilitate it through their own investment base. And, you know, we're helping them find additional investors. We're just starting to onboard more groups that are looking for diligence ready deal flow to come in, RIAs, broker dealers, et cetera, from there. Uh, we've got a couple that are on. And in a sense, for several of those, they're looking at deal flow, but they're also actually looking at us to become their middle office where they have opportunities that have been in their pipeline that they just need to get it so they can easily review it, and look at it, diligence it, and determine whether it's suitable or not. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, for them, it's how do we say yes or no? Uh, and even if you say yes, it's yes to step one. You know, there's 10 steps that they're going to go through before they approve it. Uh, sometimes the challenge is just getting to the, that first step. So, so for us, we've kind of become that middle office portion. You know, we also have, you know, our ownership structure, SKK, ClearList, uh, ShareNet, who are using it actively now, which is which has also been helpful. They've been using it for quite a while, and they're the ones that have been one of the great factors in helping us develop the software to where we are today. And just to be clear, this will be across assets and product type, right? So yeah. private equity, venture capital, real estate, uh, secondaries, and anything is is available. And I guess as a follow-on question there, who's the gatekeeper? So we are a technology platform to facilitate it. We're not analyzing the deals. I'm not saying this is a good deal, bad deal. Uh, in fact, we specifically stay away from that. We're not a regulated entity. We're just the- Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure your lawyers have that paper to prove yeah, you're not making no endorsements, right? Yeah. We, we make it clear. So, so we don't turn anyone away. What I do tell people is that we will not publish your opportunity out to on our 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 network of intermediaries. It's a term that you know we we use of those RIA broker dealers, et cetera, until you've completed your data room, you know, that institutional level uh, due diligence questionnaire. What I found for a lot of companies is, hey, that's great. We'll we'll get there. But right now I've got five, 10, 15. 20 people that want to see it. And really what I need is the digital roadshow, the, the who we are, the what we are, the, you know, the pitch deck plus. And I need the technology for them to sign NDAs, for them to see it, and for them to sign subscription documents. And so, you know, for there, we're just as a support one-on-one, uh, but as they complete and push out from there, you know, they'll get out onto the whole platform for anyone to see their investment opportunity. Did that answer your question? I feel like I just went off track a little bit. <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. You really are just trying to be functionally as a, as a marketplace and almost a unrelated third-party vendor that's helping to facilitate these type of transactions. Yeah, that, that is our goal. We are a, just the, the marketplace facilitator for it all. Yeah. Uh, we just want to have, you know, have it work as effective and as efficient for everyone. So our whole goal is just to make sure the software, the technology allows for the, the free flow of information, conversation, and transactions. And in terms of where you think this could go, 
there are a couple of people trying to solve this riddle, right? It is a bit of a challenge. You know, could you maybe just comment on a little bit of the total addressable market, both from the investor side and also on the investment side, what that looks like? I think it was 2019. There was, you know, $1.8 trillion of money invested into private transactions. You know, what size scope were there where there were? There are 10 million accredited investors plus, I think going back to 18, uh, 19 on my data. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of money. (laughs) There's a lot of people looking for deals and investments. What's been the traditional process? High net worth people put their money into institutional funds who then fund private equity or VCs who then fund startups or, you know, growth stage businesses. And there's fees paid all the way through the process. I'm a it's worked well. It's helped a lot of companies get where they are. I think it's great. What I think we're seeing more and more, though, as as these high net worth individuals, someone allocates a million dollars to a that they want to invest in private securities, where their advisors were saying, "Well, let's put it in five hundred thousand to two funds, and you know we'll track it from there." And you really don't know where the end investment dollars go. We're seeing more and more the interest from high net worth individuals to not necessarily put them into funds that are going to fund other funds that will eventually get into companies, but to be able to find and invest in companies directly. So let's take that million dollars. Maybe they're putting 500,000 into a fund and they're taking the other 500,000 and investing $50,000 into 10 companies. Uh, you know, So they're looking, they're driving, they're growing from there. So I think there's a, a lot of demand there's a, there's a lot of money out there and people just don't know where to put it or what to do. At the same time, there's a lot of companies that are raising capital that go through the traditional routes and it's hard for the VCs to get to them all. And we all have natural biases. Silicon Valley, you know, takes care of Silicon Valley. And, you know, if you're not part of it, some often you're considered a, a secondary, uh, secondary class uh, company out there. So how do you get others to look at you? Where do you go? How do we expand beyond that? Hopefully, you know, a platform like ours and others that are coming out there are going to help, you know, take away that process, allow people to have direct access to opportunities, uh, see them easier, make better decisions, and also allow for founders, startups, growth stage companies, et cetera, to seek additional or non-traditional investment sources and break away from that, which will free up a little bit more as as these other entities will have to start looking elsewhere uh, for new companies and, and, and take it away from the geographic traditional investments and to uh, you know, hopefully de- democratize the whole process a bit more. So launching in you know May, hopefully get this moving. What's the next frontier look like? in your world? I mean, where do you, hopefully it it goes smoothly, the software works, you get transactions done, the deal flow is good, the investors are engaged. And, but I mean, you know, no IPO person just does a small thing, they do big things. So what's your big thing? So I think as we got into this, we integrated KYC AML as part of the process. Uh, You know, one of the big things with identity 
uh, and KYC. You, know, you spend all this time to get someone interested in your product. Uh, they're ready to go. And the first thing you do is then annoy them by giving them all this paperwork. And say, you have to do these 10 things and go from there. And it's it's complex. It's annoying. And you're asking them to give you, you know, personal identifiable information. And it's getting worse. As somebody who is interacting with lenders very often, I will say that in my career, it's the worst it's ever been in terms of how onerous. I mean, on the real estate side, it's now almost any investor that's over 5% of the capital stack sometimes. And you're right. I mean, these are very sensitive documents and information that, you know, I understand the hesitancy and there's an education that has to take place on my end. I mean, there are some families that understand, but a high net worth individual who maybe hasn't done a lot of private deals, you know, they don't understand that I need to go all the way to a warm body or controlling interest in a trust and just, it's a real challenge. So the nice thing for us is when someone's done it once in our system, they don't have to do it again. Huh? what we're giving them now and what is developing along is we're going to give them their own control of their identity. And when someone wants it, they can share it. In fact, we're going to get it to the point we, we, we start off talking about web three and uh, blockchain decentralized ledger, you know, identity as a token and being able to give access. I'm going to give you a token. I, I bought a car a couple of weeks ago, well, a month ago. Now, first thing I did when I went to, test drive it is they wanted a photocopy of my driver's license. I ended up not buying the first car I bought, but I didn't take the paper back when it was done. I, you know, I should have, but I didn't, you know, now my, I'm hoping they destroyed it. They said they would destroy it, but do I know whether they did that or not? Wouldn't it be nice if I could from my phone to open up an app and say, here, here's my driver's license. I'm going to share it with you for the next hour while I test drive this car and we talk and we go from there, you know, I buy the car and now I want to take out a loan. I've got to go through and share my identity and do all of this. And I want to get the best rate. So I'm going to shop it to four different groups. So I got to share my identity with four different groups so they can qualify with me. I only pick one of them, but you know, how do I get it back? What happens to my identity with those other three? How can I share it when they need it and pull it back and take away that, that and have that control of my identity. That's what we're tackling next. Uh, in coming out and really we, we built it, we, we built it internally and now we're making it a standalone product. And I'll answer, you know, <laughs> the question that I want to go to next, you know, in terms of what the future will hold is, uh, and we talked about this a little bit, I suspect at some point you're going to get into this liquidity challenge, right? You know, addressing this secondary post-transaction liquidity platform where people could conceivably trade in and out of these positions uh, in a much more efficient manner than doing a put call or some kind of double blind Dutch auction type of deal. I assume, is that something that you all have discussed internally? So it's interesting. So we provide the technology for that to facilitate, but we are not a, we're not going to set up and become a, a, a FINRA approved alternative trading system in ATS. But one of our owners is uh, ClearList, and we built the trading platform for them to operate. So we we built the functionality in. Now, and you know, one of the great challenges when a company does an IPO, the money they spend on attorneys' fees to validate cap tables, going back to the beginning to make sure 
that there's proper custody of the shares and control and everything else in the company. You know, as we built this, our thought process is to take this. This isn't just when you're raising capital once or, you know, or twice, but, you know, we, we're, we put it together so that as you go, you stay on the Trellis platform for the lifetime of being a private entity. So, you know, we've got a cap table solution. We'll track your cap table. We'll build it. We automate it in. So when you close the transaction, you don't even have to update it. Uh, it'll automatically update because it knows what round you are, who's transacting, what to do. We've kept the uh, data room and records and files. We're reminding you when to update, you know, as you go through your seed round or your A round or your B round to, to whatever. So that if you want to do an IPO, everything's stored in one spot. All the history of your company's compliance side is there and available uh, and your investor relations are all there and available. But also if you want to get into secondary trading, you know, the same process that you go through to do an IPO needs to also be done by the alternative trading system uh, before they can put you on the platform to go. They, they need to make sure that the shares that are being traded are, are proper and clear and uh, that everything is structured right uh, throughout so, you know, this is where the technology comes in and helps helps companies get to that stage. So we're not going to facilitate the trading, but uh, we're going to have your company compliant. And as an investor in those companies, you know, you know you're, you've got a better chance of getting approved for liquidity pre-IPO um, because the structure and everything's in place there from the beginning. I can't wait. It'll be great. I know from a sponsor standpoint, it's a very elegant solution to uh, to a big challenge that has been around for a long time. So I wish you the best of luck. Hope it goes smooth next month. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. It's been a lot of fun and something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And uh, kudos because a lot of people bat this idea around, but the execution of it is very challenging. And we've been on the platform. We've done a full demo with your team. It's a really good group. Um, and we're, we're going to try to you know participate as well. So I look forward to it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's it's great to be a, a guest. Yeah, the tables have turned. You're my second time today, first time uh, podcast guest. So I hope it wasn't too painful. No, it was, it was wonderful. I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Well, Dennis, uh, if people want to learn more about the platform or connect with you, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, our website is www.trellisplatform.com. Trellis, T-R-E-L-L-I-S, platform. We're on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter as well. And you can look for our, our new video. We just, a uh, short explainer video we launched today on YouTube. So we're, we're out there for everyone. Love it. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us and, and best of luck with the launch. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 